It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You think this is easy, huh? You think it's easy to sit through 11 tedious, repetitive roll call votes on who should be the House Speaker and end up with the same impasse as when you started three days earlier? Hey, everyone. Welcome. I'm kind of just, you just got to laugh about this, right? Um, So it's January 6th, 2023. There are a lot of remembrances going on on the two-year anniversary of the Capitol riot. We'll talk about that a little later in the podcast. Uh, Also want to say that I hope you have a great weekend coming up here and that I hope you'll have a chance to catch Media Buzz on Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. To say that we are still putting the finishing touches on the show is uh, both obvious and uh, kind of crazy because remember this whole drama, this whole mellow drama with could McCarthy get the votes? Did Kevin McCarthy, will he become the next speaker? Started on Monday. And I remember telling my staff, you know, I guess Monday was a holiday. It started on Tuesday. I'm getting my dates a little mixed up here, but in any event, I remember telling my staff, look, this is going to be long resolved by Sunday morning. Therefore, you know, we may leave with it. We may not leave with it. But, you know, there will be other stories that will be coming to the fore. So, of course, here it is Friday morning, and it's not resolved. And it could be resolved by the time you hear this. Like, every day I have to offer the caveat, like, you know, because this reminds me of so many other um, either congressional battles or late-night funding brinksmanship showdowns. Or just, you know, remember the months it was like, you know, they're talking to Manchin and he's going to agree any minute and they're going to have a bill. And then they wouldn't and they didn't. So obviously there were a lot of conversations going on. And just as obviously Kevin McCarthy is not making a whole lot of progress until now. But here's the thing. The way the media frame this, and look, I have absolutely no doubt that a lot in the mainstream media whether they like Kevin McCarthy, whether they don't like Kevin McCarthy, they're kind of enjoying this ritual humiliation. McCarthy just set a new record. You know, it's never before. It hasn't happened in 100 years there's been this many ballots. And he's just out there looking cheerful, knowing the cameras are on him. But the thing is, rather than, you know, the constant headlines, McCarthy goes down to defeat, McCarthy fails, McCarthy can't get the votes, Another way of looking at it would be McCarthy again demonstrates that he has the support of 95% of House Republicans. That's a lot. And if it wasn't for the fact that the margin was so thin that he could only lose four votes, you know, if the red wave had materialized and there were 30 more House Republicans than House Democrats— This wouldn't even have been a thing, but it is so close that the holdouts, the rebels, the insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, uh, are holding the balance of power. And I'm not saying he's handled it well. I mean, you kind of wonder at times why he hasn't been able to cut a deal. Or conversely, is there a deal to be cut? Do these 
rebels want any kind of agreement, or are they just enjoying the chaos? Are they just anti-government? Are they just, you know, want to throw their weight around? Because, I mean, Kevin McCarthy's been around. He's been the House Republican leader for four years. He's a pretty good politician. If there was a deal there, you'd think he would have found a way to do it. So just to give you some bits and pieces about where things stand and then uh, to weigh in with some of the opinion folks, story number one. Matt Gates, one of the anti-McCarthy crowd, the Never Kevins, um, he was given a speech on the floor in which he nominated Donald Trump to be the next Speaker of the House. Keep in mind, you don't have to be even a member of the House to serve as Speaker. And, you know, it was kind of a protest thing. President Trump is, I believe, the first president in my lifetime that didn't start any new wars. Uh, this unites elements of the right and left for the benefit of our communities. And then Steve Cohn, Democratic congressman, shouts out, he tried to overthrow our government. And obviously, there was a lot of chatter about that. You know, Democrats didn't used to do that. It was usually Republicans shouting at Obama or something. But now everybody does it. You know, get your moment on TV. Get the Instagram video going. Um, and the aforementioned Congressman Gates uh, was on Laura Ingram's show last night. And the question keeps coming up because the people opposed to McCarthy, you know, you can never be him. He's a swamp creature. There's no way. I'd rather be at the bottom of the ocean, right, than vote for Kevin McCarthy. Um, they never were able to put forth a name of somebody who would be able to get not just the 20 votes, because that's the hard 20 that seems to be voting against the California congressman, but somebody who could even win 30 votes. So Lauren Ingram says, are you okay, Congressman, if uh, there's ultimately a deal struck with moderate Democrats? If Democrats kind of co-control committees, you're fine with that? Gates says, no, absolutely not. That will not happen. And Ingram says, well, that's what happened. In other words, there are these talks going on. And Gates says, no, listen, I'm on the floor. These 212 Democrats are going to vote for Hakeem Jeffries every single time. He's a historic candidate for them. That's true. He's going to be the House Democratic leader no matter what. He's not going to be Speaker of the House. But he will be the first person of color to lead a party in either chamber of Congress. And he says, Gates says, I assure you, if Democrats join up to elect a moderate Republican, I will resign from the House of Representatives. That's how I'm certain I am that this will not happen. Okay. So meanwhile, it's like this nine-dimensional chess thing. Uh, Republican Congressman Don Bacon said House Republicans may be open to those very negotiations with the Dems to get McCarthy elected, or but that may not be the outcome. Um, all they have to do is a certain number of Democrats have to vote present, and that lowers the threshold, and then what do they get in return? And Bacon said, this is what I'm advocating, and others here as well, because they don't want to give in to, it's not so much that they love McCarthy, that they just will not let go of his coattails. They don't want to give in to what they view as a intransigent small minority in their party that wants to run everything or block everything. So Bacon says, here's what some people are advocating, and it's not just me. If these 20 refuse to be part of the team and don't come on board, we have no other choice but to go across the aisle and start negotiating. You might get like a four-seat majority in a tight house like this. Maybe you get it to a two-seat majority instead of four. There may be things we can negotiate on subpoenas or on rules, how to do a motion to recommit. There are certain things that they could give the Democrats, and in exchange, Democrats would have a little bit more hand 
a little bit more influence in running the House uh, or not, or there's a compromise candidate. Now, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times reporting that the calls that Donald Trump has been making for his guy, Kevin, remember I told you he put up the all caps, you know, vote for Kevin, get it done, uh, and didn't change any votes, uh, have been kind of dispassionate, reports Maggie. Um, Kevin is not perfect. Trump has privately told lawmakers, but he's the only House Republicans uh, capable of winning enough votes to become speaker. This is the argument that Trump is making. And McCarthy, and Trump has never forgotten this, of course, briefly criticized Trump after January 6th, two years ago today. He floated the idea of censuring him. McCarthy said on the floor, a week later, I believe impeaching the president in such a short time frame would be a mistake. That doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. And so what happened? A couple weeks went by, and Kevin went down to Mar-a-Lago, tried to mend fences for this very moment, two years later, thinking, well, if he's got Trump support, he'll become speaker. And if he doesn't, he won't. But it turns out it's a little more complicated than that. All right, a little more on the potential deal-making. New York Times reporting that Congress slogging through its third day of paralysis. Today would be day four. Um, most protracted speaker election since 1859, before the Civil War. Um, the man whose name keeps popping up is Steve Scalise. He's the number two Republican in the House. He is Kevin McCarthy's deputy. And he's seen as a kind of a backup plan here. Now, Scalise, as the story accurately reports, is backing McCarthy, hasn't done anything that will be construed as, you know, I'm really here and I really want it and I'm going to undermine him. Um, but as the Times points out, it's not clear that these holdouts will be any more happy with Scalise than they are with, with McCarthy. They have some of the same problems. Neither one has, you know, been sort of a part of the hard right, for example. And Gates, his name keeps popping up, doesn't it? was just furious with Scalise when he could be heard on a leaked audio tape from a conversation after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, suggesting that Gates's action that day were potentially illegal. Gates called both McCarthy and Scalise weak men. But overall, says this piece, there's not as much personal animus among House Republicans toward Scalise as there is toward McCarthy. And, you know, Scalise has been kind of a fixture in the House since he was first elected in 2008. Um, in 2014, he faced Colson's resignation, had to apologize for making a speech earlier in his career to a well-known white supremacist group. But unfortunately, and I've talked to him about this when I saw him afterwards, I mean, the thing he's most known for, known for and it's not the thing you want to be known for, is um, being shot and almost killed in 2017 at that Republican congressional baseball practice. Um, across the river in Virginia, shot by a crazed liberal, and looked like he might not make it, but he did. He recovered. He did all the hard physical therapy work uh, to get back. So I think there's just on the human level a lot of sympathy for Steve Scalise. Uh, is he the answer to the, this, these questions? I don't know. Um, and now we get to, shall we say, people who actually would like to have seen Kevin McCarthy become speaker, but feel like he's blown it. 
So National Review has a piece saying, it's a good time for McCarthy to consider dropping out. The author says, I say this not as somebody who believes that knocking out McCarthy will somehow cleanse Washington, but as somebody who can recognize reality. But one thing if McCarthy were gaining support with each successive vote, but there's little reason to believe this is the case. Uh, there's a much-discussed deal that has been reported by several media outlets to be on paper, um, but then the leaking of that deal or the outlines of it has pissed off some of McCarthy's critics, including uh, Congressman Scott Perry, who said it only hardened his resile, excuse me, his resolve by sowing more distrust. Um, now, Politico has a piece. You know, it's one of these like, okay, any second now there's going to be a deal. House Republicans hope they are nearing the end of their prolonged speaker fight. I am too, just because like I'm sick of covering it. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> they aren't seeing the white smoke yet. Um, Kevin McCarthy and his allies feel like they're making slow progress, but we're not seeing that on the floor for the third straight day. He fell short on the seventh, eighth, ninth ballots, and then there was a tenth ballot, and then there was an eleventh ballot that went into the evening last night. Now, there are a couple of little shifts. Um, for example, a lot of the Republicans are putting their weight behind a black congressman, Byron Donalds, who's kind of the counterpoint now to Hakeem Jeffries. Um, Gates, as I mentioned, nominated Trump. Lauren Boebert switched her support to an Oklahoma congressman named Kevin Hearn. It doesn't really matter in, in that sense because if they're not for McCarthy— and for other people, McCarthy is just as far from getting to 218. Um, so now there, were talk, there was talk about, well, adjourn for the weekend, give McCarthy more time to make a deal. His critics say, like, how much time does he need? He's been working on this for two months. Um, and various quotes from members of Congress, for example, Ken Buck. Uh, you know, what's happening now is it's Friday and people want to go home. And they also, they have babies and they have funerals to go to. And so Ken Buck is missing, uh, he missed the ninth ballot yesterday, and presumably any votes today, uh, going back to his home state of Colorado for a planned non-emergency medical procedure. Um, and so th- as the number of participating Republican members goes down, it also makes it more difficult to get to 218. And you just got to deal with everybody's life problems, right? Uh, Congressman Steve Womack, I want to see what those concessions are, line by line, name by name. Frustrated, that's mild, he says. Uh, but McCarthy's people are putting out the word that basically, you know, it'll all happen at once. Like suddenly we'll have 10 more votes than we did before. We shall see. Number two, let's look in some of the opinion people. Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal. Again, somebody who would be just would have been perfectly happy with Kevin McCarthy. I guess uh, McCarthy's strategy is simply to wear his foes down. However it ends, a better path for him would have been to protect the speakership and himself by saying, I can't be speaker under the conditions you ask because that office can't function with much of its authority sacrificed. So I will take myself out of the race. With so much tension and division, I must be part of the cause. Anyway, I will remove myself from the drama and help you resolve it. How modest this would be. The chaos that would follow could hardly be worse than what we have now, says Peggy. Um, And if no new leader emerged, they might come begging back. Please get back in. But if you want to play that cool game, you've got to be a cool cat. Instead, we're in the classic when you want it, 
bad, you get it bad territory. And it's true. I mean, what else could Kevin McCarthy give these people? The shirt off his back? I mean, he's agreed that any one person can topple his speakership. Once you do that, like, what else is there to offer? And it still didn't work. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is interesting. Um, Ms. Noonan running from a female perspective about the holdouts. Many of them are stupid and highly emotional, especially the men. Most have no historical depth. If they have little respect for institutions, it's because they have no idea how institutions help us live as a nation. They've never helped build one. They aren't serious, don't have a plan, only an attitude and a talking point. They present themselves as freedom fighters, but that isn't what they are. Now, here's a piece by David Frum in The Atlantic, a former Bush White House speechwriter, saying the defeat of Kevin McCarthy would be good for Congress, good for the U.S., might even be good for his own Republican Party. What does he mean by that? Well... The people attempting to inflict this defeat on McCarthy must include some of the most nihilistic and destructive characters in U.S. politics. McCarthy is collecting misplaced sympathy from people who want a more responsible Congress. But the House will function better under another speaker than it would under McCarthy, even if that other speaker is more of an ideological extremist than McCarthy himself. McCarthy deserves to be in trouble, says Frum because he's refused to protect the institution he now seeks to lead. And he goes into the history of um, what I told you earlier about what happened on January 6th, and then going and you know kissing Trump's ring uh, down in Palm Beach. Because earlier, McCarthy said, I've had it with this guy, referring to the January 6th attack. You know, forget, it's easy to forget, but all their lives were in danger. You know, they were all scrambling for safety. It wasn't just Mike Pence, it wasn't just Nancy Pelosi. Uh, McCarthy then enabled and supported a purge of every House Republican who acted with integrity that he had failed to muster. Uh, he endorsed the primary opponent of Liz Cheney. He stripped committee assignments from Republicans who had served on the committee to investigate the riot. And then this is interesting. Uh, f- for weeks after January 6, McCarthy denied that he had telephoned Trump that day to blame him for the attack. When then-Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Hootler or Butler, excuse me, exposed his denials as as false, McCarthy brutally rebuked her. You should have come to me. Why did you go to the press? This is no way to thank me. What did you want me to do? Lie, she said. Well, yes, obviously, that's what McCarthy wanted. Um, Butler, by the way, went on to lose the nomination in a primary battle. So, bottom line here, uh, these 20 or so Republicans are not going against McCarthy as retribution for him caving to Trump. It's not easy to discern what exactly they are exacting retribution for. They do not seem to have noteworthy policy disagreements. Their rebellions seem aimed instead at enhancing their own power within the caucus. Not that that's new in the history of the Republic, by the way. They are hostage takers whose chief demand is to keep holding their hostage forever. That at least is the view of David Frum. Now, number three, as I mentioned today, of course, January 6th, two years later. And this is an interesting uh, take in the Washington Post for nearly two hours. About two dozen people on a Telegram live stream 
cried, read scripture, listened to hymns, and prayed fervently for defendants in jail facing trial for their roles in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. We pray for unity in those cells, said one of the group's leaders. This nightly prayer call featured one of the many support groups that have formed in the two years since the violent mob, encouraged by Trump, stormed the Capitol and tried to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Right-wing supporters of the Jan Sixers have formed prayer chains, instigated letter-writing campaigns, I should say, um, organized vigils, and raised millions of dollars for their legal defense, all with the aim of supporting the 932 federally charged defendants that they see as valiant patriots, prisoners of conscience, persecuted for engaging in their First Amendment rights. What's well, kind of how Trump sees it. Remember, he's talked about um, he would pardon many or most of them and he would apologize on behalf of the government. So since that dark day under the Capitol Dome, the January 6th defendants have raised more than $3.7 million on the Christian crowdfunding site Give, Send, Go, according to a Washington Post review of those accounts. Um, the movement is gaining or growing by leaps and bounds says a guy um, in New York State whose son pleaded not guilty to charges of beating police officers with a baseball bat during a lengthy assault. Um, you know, look, if you think, and I'm not saying that every one of the 932 people charged here, you know, was guilty of violent assault. And obviously some of them got swept up, but that's why you have prosecutors to look at these things. But this has always been now, and the media are very much part of this, the paradox about January 6th in marked contrast to the unbelievable tragedy of 9-11, where the country came together. But January 6th, if you, if you mention it now, it's all become so politicized that you have one faction that thinks the Democrats and the media just want to keep using January 6th and the riot as a, a, a club to pound their political opponents into submission, all the coverage the January 6th committee got. And look, I thought a lot of the firsthand testimony from Republicans who worked with or uh, worked for Donald Trump was very powerful. But then you got to the end and they were just like, you know, throwing out the last dregs of the depositions and so forth. And clearly the media tried to keep this alive. Kellyanne Conway said to me on Media Buzz uh, one time that for the media, they wake up every morning, they look at the calendar, and they still think it's January 6th. There certainly has been a concerted effort to keep that story alive. But then on the other side, you know, you have Donald Trump not only praising uh, the rioters, but talking about how the election was rigged, how the election was stolen, um, you know, how he... Remember when he said on that, when he finally asked him to go home, he said, go home, we love you, you're very special. You know, it's like this alternate reality. And that's why it's just so, it's like two competing portraits. We've all seen the video and the awful attacks on police officers, both Capitol Police and others, trying to defend democracy. It is horrible to relive. But nevertheless, the country is as divided over this, maybe less so, but divided to some extent over this as it has been 
over Trump's, you know, the election was stolen business. And he is tied to do the two together. Um, it's almost like January 6th is baked into the electorate on the far right, says former Republican Congressman Denver Riggleman. When they see January 6th, they automatically think peaceful patriots being persecuted as political prisoners, which is quite a bit of alliteration. It normalizes violence, he says, as an acceptable method for political disagreement. In effect, it endorses domestic terrorism. Now, you may have a different view of this, but it really has become, because many of, I think it's 18 out of the 20 holdouts in the speaker fight are also election deniers, and a handful of them, you know, were, were Republicans who the January 6th committee, when it existed, said should be looked at. It, it, it's almost like you now can't separate the two. And look, a lot of people have nuanced feelings, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are Republicans or who are Trump supporters who think what happened in the Capitol riot was awful. But if they're in politics, many of them have been afraid to say so. Um, and so you have this playing out today where most of the never-Kevin people are, were pro-Trump people who just come out and say, look, I love Donald Trump, greatest president of my lifetime, but I think just think he's wrong on this and she should stay out of it because it's a house fight. All right, let's move on to a couple of other things here, such as story number four. So I still can't forget tuning in ESPN, Monday Night Football. The game had been played for nine minutes at that point. Cincinnati Bengals came out and went to a touchdown. Buffalo Bills came out, kicked a field goal. Bengals leading 7-3. And then suddenly, as everybody on the planet now knows, um, you had the collapse on the field, cardiac arrest, by DeMar Hamlin. And finally now, the question has hung in the air, well, what's the NFL going to do about this? Is that game going to be resumed, or how are they going to deal with it? And it's a pretty imperfect compromise, but I'm not going to be highly critical because the good news here is the good news about DeMar Hamlin, whose charity for toys has now raised like $6 million because everybody knows who he is, is that he's awake and communicating in writing. One of the first thing he wrote was, who won the game? <laughs> and so I can't tell you how relieved I am that all the people who tried to assist him with his cardiac arrest, restarting his heart twice, once on the field in Cincinnati and once at the hospital, uh, have gotten this guy to a point where he is conscious and is actually able to communicate with other people. So that's great. So what about the game? Well, if the game, the game has been canceled, then it's not going to be resumed. So the Bills have a record of 12 and 3. The Bengals have a record of 11 and 4. They will each have played, they will each have played one fewer game than other teams in the NFL. And that's not going to change which team makes the playoffs, but it will affect how they are seated. And here's what the league came up with. The AFC Championship game would be held at a neutral site. Well, that's a pretty big deal if you don't get your hometown crowd. If the teams that qualify played an unequal number of games. 
and both could have been top seed. So if it ends up being two different teams, each of whom could have uh, had the home field advantage if they played the full complement, the full league schedule, well, now that's not going to happen. They'll just move it somewhere else, you know, which is fine for the television audience, but obviously uh, you're depriving the fans. Secondly, if the Baltimore Ravens, who are 10-6, and six, beat Cincinnati for the second time on Sunday, and some of this gets like you got to get your pencil out, and if the AFC North rivals are scheduled to play one another in the wild card round, that, the site of the, that game will be determined by a coin toss. So, you know, the league admits there's no perfect compromise. I mean, they could have ordered a redoing of the game, but I think that would be very traumatic for these two teams. And so they're trying to do it in a way where nobody gets knocked out of the playoffs who wouldn't otherwise have made it, even though you might not uh, have qualified for the bye or you might not get the whole field advantage. And really, when we're talking about life and death and the miracle of survival of DeMar Hamlin, um, who cares, right? I mean, the important thing is that the guy looks like he will survive. He may have other problems from his medical ordeal, but one day at a time. And we'll see, obviously, football, most popular sport in America. We'll see how that pans out. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, this last story uh, is one of these phony trend stories <laughs> that runs from time to time in major newspapers. I don't think anybody is actually talking about this, but maybe if you, maybe I'm not cool enough to know. It's a piece in the New York Times about how New York is becoming more like L.A., and how that's a good thing. But when you read it, it's like, okay, it's a balmy January afternoon. You buy an avocado and pickled turnip sandwich uh, and some legal weed at a high-end smoke shop. Um, and then you meet friends for early mocktails at the San Vicente Bungalows. It's an ideal Los Angeles day. And soon, you won't have to leave Manhattan for it. New York City may think of itself, may think of itself as a singular New York City may think of itself as singular, but it's increasingly possible to live the Los Angeles lifestyle here without the inconvenience of a cross-country flight. New Yorkers drive more and ride the subway less. They're eating earlier, dressing sloppier, and doing ketamine. The mayor parties at a Kardashian hangout, and there's an organic mattress store on Fifth Avenue. Is this the longangularity? So obviously this doesn't apply to the average person who's, you know, on the subway coming in from Brooklyn or Queens to try to make a living. This is the elite of the elite that are, there's no trend that they're not part of. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, this has gone on for years where, you know, there would be something on the West Coast like juice bars or fad diets, and they would make their way to the city of New York. Um, but now, New York's first legal recreational pot store opened last month. Legalized pot has always been thought to be kind of a West Coast thing. You know, it was Oregon, it was Colorado, Colorado and California. Bringing a staple of Los Angeles living to lower Broadway. Uh, new car registration spiked 28% in Manhattan because people want to be able to get away. A beach is being built off the West Side Highway. I'm not sure I'd go swimming in that water. 
Uh, 11 Madison Park, Manhattan's pinnacle of four-star dining, went vegan. Um, anyway, it goes on and on with these examples and basically says that, oh, even climate, for example. Uh, this past Wednesday, L.A. reached a high of 61 degrees. In New York, it was 66. All right, we'll see how that looks a month from now. Um, okay, so Manhattan will never have palm trees. But a convergence of forces seems to be bringing the culture of the two cities closer together. And this is where you get to like a semi-serious point. One was the pandemic. The entire pandemic was the L.A. lifestyle, said um, Andy Cohen of Bravo. We stayed home and did nothing. Uh, Sue Chan, food industry, industry event specialist, splits her time between the two cities said New Yorkers' isolation during COVID fueled an obsession with self-improvement, self-care, and self-love, the epitome of California living, where one can go for days without seeing a single human. So I don't think that's limited to New York. A lot of self-love going around. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Oh, and then when people eat. Here's Chris Black, New York fashion consultant. New York used to love to pretend it had a European-style 9 or 10 p.m. dinner culture. Um, But... Now it's hard to get seated. People are eating earlier. They want to go to bed earlier. I don't know. It seems like such a stretch, and it always cracks me up when when it's presented as something as if the entire city, Le New York, the entire metaverse, the media capital of the United States of America, is becoming more like its California counterpart. Uh, Okay, I think there might be a different view of this. In the City of Angels, we await the competing response in the L.A. Times, except for the fact that people in New York read newspapers and people in L.A. don't. Now, okay, that's a gross exaggeration, but they don't wake up saying, okay, I got to get the newspaper and see what's going on. They wake up and say, how's the surf today? Okay, gross oversimplification. Obviously, I've gone on so long that I'm getting a little uh, carried away with myself. So once again, hope you have a great weekend coming up. Thank you for spending this time with me. Media Buzz, Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. Maybe this uh, melodrama in the house will be resolved by then. Maybe it won't. Maybe we'll just be picking at the scabs. But we'll see you back here Monday with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.